John Malella is going to be capping off our summer series in endurance. So we've been working our way through uh, the Apostle Peter's first letter to a group of Christians who were scattered in a uh, Roman province in what is modern-day Turkey. And we've called this series Endure, and uh, John today is actually going to be talking about what Peter suggests might be one of the keys to you and I enduring. So to set him up, Rob, would you lead us in prayer? I will. Let's go to the Lord. Father God, we first of all pray that you would give us ears to hear and a heart to receive what you have laid on John's heart. And that, Father, you would speak through him as I know you uh, have in the past. Father, change us. Let us leave here today, change people. And if we have burdens on our hearts, Father, let us talk to somebody and get prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning. And we're so glad you're here. It becomes part of our liturgy, almost, our habit to say that no one's here by accident. We really believe that. And my hope and prayer today is that, as was already said, we all walk out of here a little bit changed and a little bit different. So I'm, I'm John Malella. I'm one of the elders here at Gateway Community Church. And I'm going to be bringing you today a message to cap off our study in the book of 1 Peter. The study is Endure. And today we are going to be looking at what I believe is a key, or maybe the key, to how to endure. So this week I thought about when I uh, grew up in New York, in New York City, in Queens. Uh, some of you can hear the accent. Okay, you're wondering why we don't have a translator here down at the bottom. We can certainly, if we need to Google Translate this sermon later, we, we can certainly do that. So about fourth, fifth grade, I remember that a lot of times I'd come home from school and with my little brother, he's about four years younger than me, and especially if the weather wasn't good, you know, sometimes we couldn't play baseball because the, uh, this is true, the, the sewer plate was iced over and that's, that was home plate. So we, we couldn't play our, our stickball. We actually did. That, those are not myths. We actually did play stickball back in the day. So instead, we'd come home and we, we'd watch TV. And I remember we would plant ourselves on the couch with a big bag of sour cream and onion potato chips, and we would watch the 4.30 movie. It was on every day. Guess what time it was on? Okay, you're actually paying attention. That's a good thing. So the 4.30 movie a lot of times would have the, uh, what I call the B-movie classics. And it would have things like uh, you know, sci-fi movies that would really fire, fire the imagination of the young John Malella. Things like Planet of the Apes the original, Roddy McDowell, as well as things like Journey to the Center of the Earth. I realized, the first service, I realized these are all movies that they remade, and I don't really understand why. Can't we come up with a new idea for a movie? I don't know why we can't do that. But one movie in particular caught my imagination, and it was called Fantastic Voyage. Anybody remember this? Fantastic Voyage. <laughs> okay, you are showing your age if you did. Exactly. So, Fantastic Voyage. Boy, that really does look campy, doesn't it? 1966, it actually came out. And the movie was about, basically it starts off, there's a scientist. And he's, this is during the Cold War, he's behind the Iron, Iron Curtain. So he's in the, the Soviet Union, he's American, I think, or British, I forget. And he discovers the secret of miniaturization. So the idea is, how do you make things 
really small, how do you make people really small? It's almost like nanotechnology, but this is 50 years ago. So he discovers this secret of how to make things small, and what he does is he tries to escape the Iron Curtain, and he, well, of course, it's the, you know, the, the evil Soviet Union, so they try to get him assassinated, and they try to shoot him, and he winds up in a coma with a blood clot in his brain, and it, it, you can't operate. If you operate, he dies. So somebody has the bright idea, we need to get in there, can't operate, so let's take this submarine and we're going to shrink it down and we're going to send it into his bloodstream and we're going to control it. The doctors are going to be like, you know, on the, on the intercom and direct the submarine to, uh, to cure his blood clot. In order to perform the surgery, they need to get small. In order to be effective, they need to get small. In order to save this man's life, they need to get small. What we're going to look at today is the power of being small. So pray with me, please. Lord, I realize all I have up here are words, and we are inundated with words from the time we wake up to the time we go to bed. But I pray that these words would be different. I pray that the words that are from you would have wings and they would go right into our hearts. And I pray that the ones that are not from you, they would be forgotten quickly. And Lord, as we also pray, I, I want to pray for my friend Mabel today that you would lift her up and bring her to the place that she needs to be. In Jesus' name, amen. So here's what I want to do today. I'm going to read the passage I'm going to make some comments, and then we'll sing a song afterwards in response, and then we'll, we'll call it a day. So I'm going to read from 1 Peter, and why don't, why don't we rise, just get the blood going, old school. We're going to read this passage out of reverence. This is God's word. This is his message to us. So to the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's sufferings who also will share in the glory to be revealed be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. You may be seated. So in this book, Peter has talked to what I call the household. He's given instructions to husbands and to wives. He's talked to masters and slaves. And now he's speaking in the church, and he's going to start with the leadership, the elders. I will say this. Somebody reminded me in between services that even though Peter is talking to the elders of the church, he's talking to church leadership. So he's talking about small group leaders, team leaders, anybody who is appointed to lead. But we're going to start with the elders. Before we do, did you notice anything about Peter's address to, the, to his readers? Peter's credentials, I think it's very interesting. He calls himself what? He calls himself an elder. He didn't have to use this label. You know, Peter is an apostle. 
He tells us that at the very start of this letter in chapter 1, verse 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. He's actually one of the leaders of the apostles. He could have given his resume right here. He could have said, I, Peter, handpicked by Jesus to bring the message of Jesus to the Jewish people, to bring the Jesus story, the gospel, to the Jewish people. He could have said, I, Peter, remember, I was the one on Pentecost that stood up and preached and 3,000 people got saved. He doesn't say that. He tells us two things in his credentials. He says what he's seen and where he's going. What he's seen and where he's going. So he tells his readers that he's a witness of what? Jesus' miracles? Jesus' teachings? He could have said, I was a witness of Jesus' resurrection. I was there in the cave, in the grave. I was there and I felt... The garments that were empty, he didn't say that. He says, I'm a witness of Jesus' sufferings. This is a reminder to us. We serve a suffering God. We serve a suffering God. You know, there are religions and ways of thinking about God that look at God as, God, you're just so great and you're so majestic and so remote that there's no way you would ever get your hands dirty with humanity. You are so large... And so great, there's no way that you would ever know what it's like to be small, God. But Christianity is different. Peter reminds us that at the core of our faith is this idea that this great God willingly allowed himself to be brutalized, to be abused and murdered for our benefit. Peter reminds us that in our suffering, we do not deal with a God who stands far off, But instead, as the writer of Hebrews says, we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but he knows. He has been tempted in every way as us. He knows. And as the British writer Dorothy Sayers says, a long quote, but I think it's rich and it's good. So just listen. It says, for whatever reason God chose to make man as he is, limited in suffering and subject to sorrows and death, he had the honesty and the courage to take his own medicine. Whatever game he is playing with his creation, he has kept his own rules and played fair. He can exact nothing from man that he has not exacted from himself. He has himself gone through the whole of human experience from the trivial irritations of family life and the cramping restrictions of hard work and the lack of money to the worst horrors of pain and humiliation, defeat, despair, and death. When he was a man, He played the man. He was born in poverty and died in disgrace, and he thought it well worthwhile. We serve a suffering God. The second point Peter makes about himself is he points toward the goal of all of God's plan, the glory for which we were created. More on that later. So in light of Jesus' suffering and our own suffering, what, what should leadership look like in the church? Peter is going to speak to the elders, but I think it's for all, anyone who leads. The main verb he uses is, to describe our function, is shepherd. We are to be shepherds. Now, I've heard that used in a general sense at work, especially. We shepherd a project or a proposal. But what does shepherding look like in biblical thought? I think we could put it into two main concepts. Shepherds are concerned with two things. They're concerned with protecting the flock and providing 
for the flock. Biblical shepherds protect and provide for the flock. How does a shepherd do this? He makes sure that the flock is fed and that it is safe. How do we do that at Gateway? You know, we take protection seriously here, physical protection. How many of you know that we have a safety team here that's actually patrolling as we speak, watching out to ensure that, hey, we know what kind of world we live in, making sure that things are right. If you're going to work with our kids, you know we're going to ask you for some information so we can run a background check. We protect our kids. We have a two-adult rule. If you're going to be alone with the kids, two adults not related to each other at all times, we take this seriously as a body of elders. We also protect the church legally and financially. As we realize that in this day and age, churches that are trying to be biblically sound are now targets for activists who think they're doing right by targeting churches. We take it very, very seriously that the money you give is hard-earned, and we rack our brains to decide the best ways to use that money. We also seek to provide for you. We want to see you fed with the very best biblical teaching and care possible. That's why we're careful about who is up here speaking on a Sunday morning. We're careful about the teaching that goes into the small groups. We want to make sure that you're fed with only the best. So you're going to have to indulge me for a second. I'm going to brag on my fellow elders for a second. And I didn't know them well before I became an elder, but here's what I found in, in the, the years that I've worked with them. These guys have great hearts. They have great gifts. I Usually when I'm sitting there in the room with them on a Saturday morning, for hours, we're sitting together, and you know, sometimes I feel like I'm playing triple-A ball and they're in the majors. We have probably the, the best church lawyer in the United States with Rob Showers. Eric Knox has forgotten more about management than I'll ever know. Then we have Phil Salee, who probably one of the most brilliant human beings I've ever met. You know, Phil talks, and about all I can say to that is, food goes in here. And then we, well, then we have Ed. It's been a privilege to serve with them. They're men who care. But you know, as I wondered, as I read this passage, if I wonder as leaders and as elders, the best thing that we bring to the table is not our talents or experience, but our smallness. We look out at this congregation, and you are now an army. <laughs> you have grown. And here's what we see. We see some of you are surging ahead. You are stepping into your gifts. You are stepping into your callings, and we're feeling the weight of you. And it's wonderful. It is amazing. It is energizing. Others of you are still on the, you're, you're looking, you're inquiring, you're on the outskirts, but you're moving towards that center, which is wonderful. Others of you, life is hard. There's personal conflict, interpersonal conflict we have not been able to solve. Some of you struggle with chronic illnesses that we have not been able to pray away. Some of you struggle with depression. Some of you are, are paralyzed by anxiety. Some of you have jobs that are killing you. Some of you have grown so cold that you're probably been wondering, what are you doing here on a Sunday morning? Because you don't even know if you believe half this stuff. Some of you once had fire in your hearts that's grown cold. 
And we see this. We see this. And we feel the weight of that. And sometimes we, in our best moments, you know what that drives us to? That drives us to God. Because we look at you and we say, we don't know the solutions. With all our vast experience and all our brains, we don't know the solution. So it drives us to God. And we cry out for wisdom. We claim James chapter 1, whoever asks for wisdom, God will give it. And we ask for that wisdom and we pray on your behalf. And we intercede on your behalf. The best thing we bring to the table is our weakness. That's biblical leadership. Is our smallness. Is our smallness. So that's the leaders. What about the others? Peter's instruction is very similar to what he says in in prior chapters. He says, likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Be subject, or some translations have it, submit. You know, I feel like I need to say something to some of you who come out of church backgrounds where you've been wounded. And I realize as more people come to the church, we're starting to see that more. You know, maybe you came out of a church leadership that was abusive, that did the opposite of what Peter says. Maybe they were overbearing or controlling or even aloof or even uncaring, seemingly. You saw this abused. And, you know, wherever there's people, there's problems. If you've been through that and you hear the word submit and you feel this clenching in your jaw, can I say to you, I can, I can start to understand that. We don't want to do that. That's not what church leadership is about. It is never about control. It is about care. And let me say this. I don't think Peter using the word submit or be subject to, I don't think he means for you to just sit there and be silent. Let me quote the Apostle Paul in a different context. God forbid, God forbid that you just sit there and be silent. You are the church. You are the church. You have been given gifts and talents. And unless they are exercised, you and I will both be impoverished. Peter has already pointed out that all of us, all of us are like living stones that are being built into a house for God to dwell Now let's move on. Peter says, Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward each other, toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. You know, some of you may be from church traditions where you you dressed up for church, right? You wore a suit or a nice skirt or something, and your first time at Gateway, you realize, wow, this church is casual. We don't do that. Yeah, some churches, you're scandalized if you wear shorts. Not a gateway. We see a lot of legs here. <laughs> Some of you notice that people wear their team shirts here. You know, their gateway, whatever they're doing, the uh, setup team or, or whatever. Interesting that Peter here is bringing up what I think is the only New Testament description of what to wear to church. He says to wear humility. Put on humility toward each other. Clothe yourself with it. Put it on like a garment. Hmm, what is Humility. You know, it might help to say what it's not. Humility is not self-loathing. It is not getting out the whip and doing what the medievals would call flagellation. It's not that. It's not giving yourself a regular beating. That's not humility. It's also not downplaying when you're good at something. (laughs) 
Yes, you invite somebody over for dinner and you spend four hours cooking and they say, this is delicious, and you say, oh, I just whipped that up. Right? We downplay what we're good at and we think we're being humble. But secretly, we know we're good at it. Pretending to not be good at something when we really are is not humility. You know, in the room today, I see an army of people with gifts and talents that I don't have. I know that I'm really good at certain things. I know there's an entire universe of things that I stink at. (laughs) I'm just not good at them. That's just not me. For instance, don't give me math to do. Okay, if you give me something mathematical, I will cheat with Google. (laughs) Don't give me that. But I can usually do words pretty well. But some of you are incredibly smart. You know how to think. Some of you are excellent organizers. You see a problem or a process. You know what needs to happen to get it done. You're administrators. Some of you can teach. Some of you have prayed for people and you've seen them healed. Some of you hear from God on a regular basis. Denying your gifts is not humility. So what is humility? What is biblical humility? I think we see a glimpse of this in the Gospels. There's this one scene in the Gospels, in the biographies of Jesus, when the disciples are arguing, who is the greatest? And Jesus hears the argument. He takes a little child and he says, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. What is it about children that makes them models of humility? Is it because they're always well-behaved? We had, my wife and I, Lisa, we have three kids, and they're kind of mostly grown right now. We could say through personal experience, no. (laughs) It's not because they're always well-behaved. No. Is it because they always do what we want them to do as parents? No. No. Oh, did I, by the way, did did I mention that this sermon is interactive? Did I mention... So feel free, throw in an amen, hallelujah, whatever you need. It's good. Yeah. What is it about children? Small children are artless. They're artless. They don't know how to be anything other than what they are. They haven't learned yet how to wear a mask to get what they want and when to wear it. If they're hungry, you know it. Daddy, I want a snack. If they're tired, I'm tired. (laughs) If they're bored, can you get me my toys? If they're upset, you'll know it. They have not yet become the charlatans and swindlers that we grown-ups are. Small children are dependent. They are totally dependent on their parents to fill all their needs for love, for food, safety, security, and toys. They know their needs, and they look to their parents to fill them. They don't always or usually understand what their parents are are doing, and they don't like everything their parents are doing, but they know they are loved and cared for. So biblical humility is childlike dependence on God. Can you repeat that with me? Biblical humility is childlike dependence on God. One more time. Biblical humility is childlike dependence on God. How is this a key, or maybe the key, to everything that Peter has said up until now about how to endure suffering? 
Let's look at the next verse. Peter says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Mm, This is tough. This is a little tough. This, This one rocked me on my heels a bit. Okay, Peter is saying that God will actually be against you if you're proud. And here we see the great divide of humanity, the sheep and the goats, sheep and the goats, the wheat and the weeds. Peter is saying there are two kinds of people in this world. There's only two kinds. Those that receive from God and those that don't. It's only two kinds. The ones who don't receive anything, who won't receive anything, are called the proud. The proud are the ones that wear a no soliciting sign on their hearts. No soliciting. In other words, God, we don't want it. We don't want it. We don't need it. No soliciting, God. We don't want it. We don't need it. The humble, why do they get grace? Are they more deserving? Or is it that their hands are open and they're able to receive? Peter says also something specific here. God gives them what? He gives them grace. What is grace? What is that? That's a religious word. We use that all the time. Grace and peace and all these words. What are they? It's worth a step back and let's look at that. First of all, it's not a thing. Grace is not a thing. It's also not just God's good attitude towards you. What is grace? I like how Dallas Willard, philosopher, actually passed away a few years ago out at USC, also a pastor, He defines biblical grace. He says, grace is God acting in our life to do what we cannot do on our own. Grace is God acting in our life to do what we cannot do on our own. You know what I think some of us treat grace like? Anybody familiar with intermittent fasting? Okay, that's like the latest scheme to lose weight. I'm actually thinking of trying it myself to drop a few LBs. I wouldn't mind it. It's either that or keto. Not sure which. Intermittent fasting. Those of you that don't know about it, and I'm not an expert, but the way it works is is you choose a window of time every day that you're going to eat. Right? I think it's either an eight-hour window or a 12-hour window where you're going to eat. And outside that window, you're not going to eat. You choose, I'm going to eat during these hours and none other. I think some of us treat grace that way. God, I want some grace because I'm in trouble or I feel rotten or I'm going to get a little bit in the morning. Maybe, you know, I'll read a psalm or two or, you know, try to pray and maybe at night again a little bit. And, you know, Sunday I'm going to get a big helping. Maybe a small group, I'll I'll get some more. And we treat grace like intermittent fasting. We set a window when instead what we're being invited to is (laughs) something one of my coworkers said a few years ago to me. He said, John, you eat all day, don't you? (laughs) And it's true. I would have my bag of sunflower seeds or, you know, and, you know, I would just, I would, that's what we're invited to do. That's how we treat grace. God is, I want you to eat all day. I want you to receive this all day. And our humility, our childlike dependence on God allows us to do that. 
And I like Dallas Willard says, the saint, the Jesus follower, uses grace like a 747 jet burns gas on takeoff. In other words, a lot of it. A lot of it. We don't just pick. We feast on grace. So grace is God's activity in my life. Peter is giving us a promise. If we cultivate that honest, childlike dependence on God, we will see and feel his activity in our lives. And I see two contexts in this passage in which the receiving of grace plays out. One inner and one outer. And actually three contexts. And then the future. So we're going to look at the inner, the outer, and then the future. In verses 6 and 7, Peter goes on, he says, Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. You know, the older I get, the more I worry about. I don't know if you guys have the same thing. You know, ever since I turned 29 last year, that wasn't funny. I worry. Worry about my health. Ooh, getting at the age where I got to see the doctor more often. You know, it's, it's never good news. It's like bringing 14-year-old minivan into the... In, they're going to find something. I worry. Worry about my health. Worry about the direction this country is going in. Right? Not a lot of good news out there. Worry about my retirement, my 401k. Worry about the stock market. Worry about what people think about me. Worry about my work. Worry about suffering. Anxieties upon anxieties and cares upon cares. Peter's readers originally worried about their livelihoods. What's going to happen when we're marginalized because we're Jesus followers? So what does it mean for humility in this context? You know what it means? It means I give all of these anxieties to God. I give all of these to God. I recognize that he is the one who has the mighty hand, and I don't. It means that I hide nothing from him. I acknowledge the pain. I acknowledge the disappointment. I acknowledge the inconvenience, and I submit to his plan. Small children don't worry about retirement. They don't worry about their jobs. They don't worry about relationships. They don't worry about whether the roof needs replacing. They don't worry about the future. They live in the now, and they look to their parents to take care of them. And so we are invited into that kind of life, grace-filled and grace-fueled, where every day we look to God and say, fill me, and we trust him to do it. So this is one of the ways that living in humility, childlike dependence on God plays out. We take all our burdens, we throw them on God, and we trust that he has broad shoulders and can handle them. But there's another way we exercise this dependence. That was the inner as we deal with our anxiety and fear. But what about the outer? The outward arena is the arena of spiritual warfare. In verses 8 and 9, Peter says, Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. So how does humility play out in our understanding and experience of dark forces? A few things. If you're living in childlike dependence on God, 
and the Bible says you have an adversary, you're going to believe it. Even though the whole, what, the devil? Oh, boy, that seems quaint. Doesn't that? that seem, is that like a medieval remnant? What is that? Really? Like with horns? No, not with horns. No. Even some of our religious writers, you know, they want to mythologize away this devil. Oh, that's just the bad tendencies of humanity. That's it. No. The Bible is very clear. You and I have an adversary. To our hyper-educated Western ears, the idea of Satan can seem quaint and outdated. But the Bible is clear that God's purposes and God's people are opposed by a powerful and cruel spiritual enemy, an adversary. And we're warned to be aware of this adversary. So how does humility play in with this? Humility will protect us. Humility will protect you against this adversary. And here's how. Here's how it will protect you. When your adversary assaults you with temptations, you will be able to say, no. God is my father and he gives me everything I need. When the adversary comes against us and tempts us to lust, to gluttony, to pride, to pornography, to power, to despair, to discouragement, when he tempts us to unbelief, we can look at him and say, no, even though some of these look really good to me. My father feeds me, and I don't need these. When our identity as Christians is assaulted, we can say, no, I belong to the father, and I trust in him, and he's going to take care of me. And if we're assaulted in our bodily health, we'll be able to say, my body ultimately belongs to the Lord, and this affliction is only for a time. And in our humility, our childlike dependence on God, drenched in grace, we will stand against the enemy, and he will depart. So what about the future? How does humility play out in the future? Well, in Fantastic Voyage, that miniature crew, they are successful. They save the scientist's life, and after that, they get big again. Peter also reminds us that our smallness, our humility, is the way to our bigness. The way down is the way up. Peter says the glory that will be revealed in us. He says you will receive the crown of glory. Humble yourself so that the proper time he may exalt you, he may lift you up. You know, my wife and I were talking the other day. What is heaven going to be like? What is it going to be like to be in God's presence? He says you're not just going to bask in it. You're going to share in it. How hard it is for us, though, to imagine what that's going to be like. It's kind of like telling, how do you explain to a fish? What is it like to not be wet? It's difficult. But we are promised that our way down is our way up. And he will lift us up in due time. Stand with me, please. Let's go to him for a few minutes. So, Lord, we're before you again. Again, in all the different places that we're at, you know how to reach us. And you know the ways to our hearts. 
And Lord, I know that there's some of us today that have never received from you. And I know today is the day for them. Today is the day for them to receive from you, to connect with you for the first time. Today is the day. And I know for other people, it's been a long time since they received anything from you. And Lord, as much as we are able, our hands are open, our mouths are open, and we say, please feed us, give us that grace. We need your activity in our lives. Lord, we pray that we would more and more see the power of, of uh, being small. It's in Jesus' strong name we pray. Amen. Let's go back and sing the chorus to that last song. Slave to fear. I'm no longer a slave to fear. I am a child of God. I'm no longer a slave to fear. I am a child. Thought as we go. I'm no longer a slave to fear. 
child. That's all for this week. Go in peace.